0: Welcome to The Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery, the only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at innovationoz.com. I'm talking today with Mariana Prika, the Managing Director of Food Innovation Australia Limited, FIAL one of the six industry growth centres run by the federal government to support industry areas where we consider we have a competitive advantage. So, I'm going to start with a very broad question, and that is, we seem to be having a bumper crop in the agricultural sector this year. It's been a, a big year, a great harvest. So, are we doing enough in Australia to capture the value that's being produced by those primary producers?
1: Hi, James, and great to um, be here today um, talking to you. So, the answer is I think the commodity crops, agricultural crops, are really important to our economy and our country. But the real opportunity is how do we capture more of that value adding? How do we capture more of that differentiation? So that way, you know, this year we've got a bumper crop, but next year it may change, or the year after, there may be another climate condition that impacts our crop and we know that they're forecasting there are going to be changes so i think the real challenge for us is how do we have that nice diverse portfolio so that we're not impacted by the cycle of the commodity
0: crops so when we're talking about value-add, I guess, in the resources sector, we're talking about doing more onshore processing, I suppose. Sure. and Effectively, we're talking the same thing by drawing a greater connectedness between agriculture and food and beverage. This is literally what you're talking about, more processing onshore. Is that, have I got that right? Um,
1: it's a part of a processing or manufacturing is a really critical component of how do we manufacture goods here. But it's not just about manufacturing. It's also about securing the supply chain. So by securing the supply chain, tracing the product all the way from the point that you've actually grown it, you've transported, you're controlling its biosecurity, you're controlling its parameters to make sure the quality of that product, that's a feature of value adding that you can introduce into the supply chain and that can extract a premium. Also to producing particular crops of a nutrient value where a particular customer or market wants it. And by doing that, you really are differentiating and therefore it can't be swapped very quickly in a global marketplace. So what you're really doing is looking for opportunities where you can differentiate and you can command and set the price rather than be a price taker. So I think that's what we're looking to do. So it's it's really across all opportunities where it makes sense and where it makes sense for Australia to actually compete in, where do we have the comparative advantage to actually do something and process in Australia? Now, we know in Australia as a market, the market is, you know, we're not going to grow a lot. You know, we're going to go from 25 to 26 to 27 million people. So, there's not a lot of mouths that we are going to be able to feed by processing food here. So, the real growth is overseas and some of our neighbours in the, in the Asian market, is it's actually where the real growth is. And I think also the opportunities are opening up in the other Western worlds. So it's a dynamic, evolving market and we should be targeting where we can make a difference, where we can have a point of difference. And that's where we should be focusing on how do we extract that value and forming relationships with those customers. So that way we're quite integrated. And we can then work with them to actually set the parameters and work backwards to ensure we meet that customer market need.
0: Okay, so I guess, I mean, you've described uh, an incredibly broad set of opportunities, I guess you'd call it, the ability to add value across a a huge range of areas. So, you know, field has got limited resources, as we all do. So where do you focus your attention? Where do you try and maximise your value?
1: So one of the challenges in our sector is the fact that we've got a large number of SMEs, and it's a problem with a lot of industries in Australia and the world as well. So the only way to get the economies to scale, because the market growth is in export, we actually work through our clusters. Now, a cluster is a group of businesses that work in partnership with the governments, from federal, state to local, with the researchers, and they address a challenge or an opportunity that they can't solve on their own. And what that does is it actually creates what I call That social connectedness, the social glue. And that social glue allows us to build trust, it opens people up, and then opportunities strike. And so, what we've been doing is trying to build those vehicles of traction because through those vehicles, you'll be able to then supply. You know, set up manufacturing precincts, set up supply chains, congregate and um, concentrate up the volume. Because of the small companies, they don't know the economies of scale. They can't supply. You know, they can't supply some of the customers overseas. But if they combine their resources, that really opens up the opportunities. And we've got some great examples across the ecosystem in Australia where we've been setting up these clusters. You know, we've got a cluster up on the Sunshine Coast. They've just been awarded close to, well, it's got the, the pulp um, investments of over $100 million up on the Sunshine Coast to set up a food and beverage manufacturing precinct to really allow those smaller businesses access to infrastructure to be able to process and create products using the fresh raw materials in the area. So it's a really great example of how you can build those economies of
0: scale just let's dig into that a little bit because that's interesting that's a big uh, big chunk of money that 100 million dollars so what what are we actually talking about what kind of products what kind of raw materials in what kind of products out and what are the destination markets for some of that
1: so the hundred million is a, it's an investment by multiple parties the Commonwealth I believe in the latest um, MMI tranche of money I think I haven't heard the most recent, but they were awarded a grant through the collaboration stream. I think it's about 20-odd million, but it's a partnership between multiple stakeholders. They're talking about creating brewery products, for example, so beverages, ale. So it's about artisanal, it's about boutique products. Then there's also creating, you know, snacks, herbs and spices, because they've got gourmet garden is located up on the Sunshine Coast. But how do you actually take a lot more and actually expand that? So it's really, it's more those specialty products of your sauces, your um, snacks. It's really what the middle class are looking for as they get wealthier, and they're trying to get access to more premium products and produce, and particularly those people that have actually come to Australia and the expats and people that are moving overseas, they're actually exposed to the portfolio of products.
0: Okay. And those destination markets are generally in Asia or they're all over the world?
1: They're generally... It's, it's a broad question that you're asking me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And what we do know is there is demand for our products everywhere, including China. And we've been facilitating a lot of buyer events between Australian export-ready suppliers and overseas buyers it's Singapore, it's Vietnam, it's Indonesia, it's America, it is, you know, China. It's where it makes sense. So what we do find is that each market's after boutique products. They're after something a bit different and particularly something that obviously protein's important. Any product that's got protein is going to hit the mark, but also something that's to do with health and wellness. So it's not an easy – I'm not a food um, futurist, so perhaps, you know, we need to talk to a few futurists in terms of the trends. But I think it's very clear people are wanting that story. They want to know where the product comes from. They want to know it's nutritious, it's good for me, it's going to make me feel good, make me healthy, and I'm going to live longer. So if you can give me all that in one product, James, then,
0: yes, you've got me. Sounds good. Sold. Okay, let me ask you this. One of your reports capturing the prize talked about the sector – potentially being three times its current size by 2030, which, I mean, at face value seems like an incredibly ambitious goal, and adding 300,000 jobs and $200 billion worth of value add. So talk me through that. Does this mean that we like, we have genuinely been quite bad at this up until this point, like given that in seven years, we can turn around uh, increasing the size of something by three times. So where are the blockages? And how do you unlock that, you know, in the next period to 2030?
1: So the way we approach capturing the prize, we talked about it from a holistic, where are the growth opportunities? So we went globally to say, where is the growth? And then we worked it backwards to say, what could Australia's share be? So those opportunities are real. Our challenge is that the way we're currently structured in Australia, we structure ourselves based on, we're either in the meat industry, we're either in the grains industry, we're either in, I don't know, dairy But those nineteen growth opportunities—they cut across, so they are agnostic to a sector. So the health and wellness opportunity, for example, is the largest growth opportunity of that two hundred billion. I think from memory, it's forty-five billion. So, but that makes up a number of components, and so and that's the challenge: is that we're not looking at it holistically, where markets and customers are we're saying well i'm in the meat industry i'm in the fish industry which is all important but i think we're very siloed and as a result we miss those opportunities so first of all we need to think about where are the opportunities rather than saying this is a sector that i play in and i think secondly we need to be investing how do we get the economies of scale to realise those opportunities. That means that we need to put together like a lot of these clusters and this is important because these clusters can solve some of the underlying challenges of accessing those markets and so research has to be at the core of it because the research will unlock the challenges of businesses that they can't solve on their own. A lot of them don't have good technical in-house expertise but research will give you that long-term competitive advantage you need to have government backing it to help support some of the infrastructure build because of some of the market failures that we have of having the large number of SMEs, and then it needs to be led by industry because the industry are the ones that are going to make it happen. And the ultimate beneficiaries, it has to align with um, the community. We need to make sure that we're looking after country. We're making sure that you know our. First Nations people are part of that opportunity, which is a massive opportunity. So, if we can do that, we can get the economies of scale. And then we need to—we just need to back it and have a long-term perspective.
0: In your a paper that you wrote for our innovation papers it was very very interesting. But you talk about these kind of silos or subsectors, and you're effectively saying that agriculture and food and beverage is a single supply chain made up of lots of different components. Anyway, you've said that. Policymakers often overlook this sector. And it's kind of extraordinary to me because I thought we were all about sheep and wheat and dairy and beef and you know, all those primary producers. So just talk us through how it's kind of fallen through the gaps in that way.
1: Well well I suppose the agriculture sector, I mean, it's it's a heritage. It's what we started with. So that that's got a strong voice and that's managed through the agriculture portfolio. So that portfolio gets backing, it um, gets leveraged by the levies that they get from those subsectors, it gets matched by the Commonwealth and they have what we would call a bit of an innovation ecosystem overseeing improving their productivity, but they themselves don't cooperate they're trying to, and and when I say cooperate, there are some real opportunities cross-sectorially that they could all benefit from, like having a common data platform, for example, supply chain, or you know, when you're going in market, you know, it should be Team Australia, and then they could all benefit and we can get the economies of scale from the branding and then extrapolate it down to each of those subsectors. So there are some things that we can do and they don't. So they get a lot of voice airtime, but the beverage sector, food and beverage manufacturing sector, gets lost. Yet, it's the most essential thing for human life. If we don't have food, and we saw it, you know, the National Food Plan that I'll I'll send you a copy that you may not have found in the system, it talks about how do we be, what's the exact word? So it's about being food secure and food savvy. So how do we make sure there's food on the plate? for every Australian. And we export about 70% of what we grow and produce. So it's not just Australians that we're trying to put food on the plate, but there's others as well around the world. Not everybody, obviously, but you know, and it's just extraordinary why we don't have a minister for food. It's extraordinary that we don't have the inputs that make the breads and the the finished products that we tend to consume unjoined under one Policy. So we have one food system. We had one set of initiatives driving the investment to realize the value of 200 billion. And we're talking about 200 billion. Value add, not, you know, the 100 billion the national farmers are talking about, it's actually gross value production. It's actually not about value adding. So, you know, people are talking about numbers, but we don't actually understand. So, we're talking about 200 billion that we could contribute to, you know, contribute another 120 billion to Australia's economy. We're currently sitting about 70 billion gross value add across food and agribusiness. So, we have the opportunity to add approximately 130 extra to our economy. But not only economically, do we contribute but we also will be feeding people we're going to be nourishing people if we nourish people in a good way we're going to have less health conditions it's going to be less of a strain on our health system people are going to be healthier they're going to be more productive they're going to be in the workforce i mean there there are spillover benefits but it's essential so the fact that we don't have that leadership around the food system is just and and the irony is that the Labor government actually talked about they created a roadmap and the framework of what actually has to happen, and so we just have to, as I say, dust off the cobwebs, tweak the plan, back it. First of all, back the plan, back it properly. And then let's get on with making the plan happen.
0: So, you're talking about that food strategy from 2013. So, you're literally talking about blowing the dust off off the cover and getting stuck in again. Is that right?
1: Well, but but yeah, and if you actually look at what's in that plan, Sophia was actually set up under the Labor government under the precinct program. And We've been implementing, this is where I talk about the corporate history. So the precinct program and the transition to the Growth Centre initiative, the key elements of what we had to focus on did not change, James. The nuancing on the language only did because the challenges are the same. So the coalition government came in and we just had to change what those focus areas were. So, you know, we focus on, one, how do we improve the capability and skills of the sector? Two, how do you connect Researchers with businesses, so businesses are getting the real research talent that they need to unlock the value and bridging that gap between researchers and commercialization with the real world. The market, the global market's evolving, changing. There are new supply chains being created. E-commerce has opened up new growth opportunities. New markets are being opened up through trade agreements. So how do we get product to market and how do we get it more cost effectively? Because, you know, Australia has some challenges with the tyranny of distance and it doesn't make economic sense to sometimes transport products around. And fourthly, how do we make the cost of doing business in our country affordable? So we are attracting and encouraging startups, we're attracting foreign investment. Those four priority areas haven't changed. They're still the same.
0: Oh, well, blow the dust off that cover. I wanted to dig in a little bit on uh, one of the things you were talking about. I mean, this is a a common problem across lots of different sectors and industries and what have you. Well, firstly, SMEs, but the connectedness between a research community and a commercial business and how do you build that connection? So in the last couple of years in particular, we've talked a lot in Australia about research commercialisation. And, and I guess we've probably talked for 20 years about this kind of ongoing meme that Australia's great at research, not great at commercialisation. It's not an entirely fair thing to say, but what does that look like in the food and beverage business or in, the, in that connection between agriculture and food and beverage? What does the research look like? How do we do? And then what does the commercialisation element, the translation element look like?
1: so how long have we got
0: (laughs) (laughs) no give it a shot
1: yeah no look look I think look if we can just talk at a high level in terms of the challenges I'm a scientist by training and I got out of science many years ago why and I used to work at CSIRO as well because you can't be good at everything you've got pure research you know, the fundamental researchers who beaver away at the groundbreaking edge of research, their area of discipline or domain that they're interested in. And then you've got those people who are the applied scientists, the people that take that and apply it. And what we're trying to do is. You were trying to make people become the one. Often when I had a lecturer who was a brilliant scientist in his field of domain, was a terrible educator, a terrible educator. And not only do you want them to be great educators, you want them to be great at writing grants, and now you want them to be great at commercialising as well. Something has to give. They can't be good at everything. So I think the challenge is that we're forcing people to have all those skill sets and in the same way, you know, I lead businesses. That's what I do. But I don't want to do research because I, that I, I don't feel that's my strength. So therefore, don't make me do that because that's not my core capability. So I think, first of all, we have to be careful about making people do things that they're necessarily not equipped to do and and don't have a desire to do or passion to do. And if you don't have a passion, then you're not going to generally not exceed in that area. So I think, first of all, we need to be clear about roles. In terms of the food industry, and we've done a lot in terms of helping our businesses connect with researchers, and we've been facilitating those conversations. And the reason why we've done it well is because we are both scientists, but we've also worked in the commercial world, and I call them the boundary speakers. And there are very few people that can do that and that have got that innate ability to understand the science. I can talk to you about quantum mechanics. I can talk to you about deep science, but I can also talk to you about it from the commercial perspective as well and translate that. And so therefore, what we've got to do is get people who, and there's only a small percentage of those people that have those skill set. And if we can embed those within the ecosystem we'll get better results. And we've also got to stop universities and other research organisations trying to sell the blue ribbon solution, the complete solution. You know, you've got to listen to the customer and the SME. The SME, a lot of the times, doesn't understand the jargon. I'm not being disrespectful, but they don't understand it. So therefore, it's the ability to listen to them understand what their challenge is and making sure that the solution is fit for purpose and then I think we can actually make it accessible so we did a pilot and as an example it's actually worked really well we had a program called the SME Solution Centre and that program was geared towards introducing SMEs and to researchers and how do you get them exposed to it and we facilitate that conversation to make sure the legalities of it all because a lot of them can't afford to get lawyers to look at research contracts which can be quite tricky and having worked with one university for a $20,000 research project they wanted to introduce 100 changes and it was going to cost me $50,000 in legal expenses so I just killed the project I said it's not happening so that's the impediment. So so what you need to do is you need to broker those conversations, make it real. And what that does is then gets the SME comfortable and then they go back and ask for seconds. So we did a pilot with the Five Food Waste CRC. We've done pilots with DAF Queensland. We've done it with CSIRO, South Australia, in Persa, where... We've done joint programs and what that program has done is introduce them to the facilities and the research capability within those organisations and then those businesses come back and ask for seconds and enter into into bigger projects and, and subsequent projects. So I think we've just got to Get the right people at the front talking and engaging and facilitating those conversations. And it can happen. And we've deployed all our funding through the Commonwealth and we've done a great job. We were also part of the Trailblazer with Charles Sturt University And partly, it's not having rigid guidelines. It's being flexible and agile and making sure that ultimately, the IP must rest with the companies that are going to commercialise it. And don't fight over something before you've even created it, because the chances are you're not going to even create it.
0: We do see a bit of that. Um, I think one of your uh, contemporaries, Adrian Beer from the Met's Ignited, the other growth centre. Yeah, also talks in similar terms about finding those people who I think he describes as a, have a bit of a commercial mongrel who can <laughs> who can uh, you know I'm a bit more sophisticated, <laughs> yeah, but who can look at the you know who can really identify the science or the research or the potential, but who equally really want to get up to the elbows in the commercial side of it and push push push. So a couple of other things, and then we're going to finish up. Mariana Prika from Fial, the Food Innovation Australia Limited Industry Growth Centre. I should have asked this before. When we're talking about growing the size of the market by three times and adding 300,000 skilled workers, where are we going to find these people? You can't have a conversation these days without talking about getting access to skills. So what's the particular story in your area? in that regard.
1: So obviously we did all this work prior to COVID and before um, everything happened. So I think it's a combination. It's a combination of areas. One, we've got to encourage more kids from high school into the industry as well to go off and do degrees. So we've, we've got to start early. A lot of people aren't aware of some of the career pathways in food and agribusiness. Some of it can look unattractive. It's not sexy. So we've got to demonstrate how there are different options and it's not just one pathway. It may not just be a a farmer plowing a field. There is now you've got sophisticated data, you've got drones, but even the tractors themselves are quite autonomous as well. So, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of that, for example. So first of all, we've got to start educating at a younger age to encourage more people into the sector. We also have got a bit of a skill shortage in terms of some of the core capabilities. We don't have enough food scientists in Australia. We don't have enough Food safety auditors. And so we really need to have a concerted effort. Either one, we bring in some skilled labor around educated people from overseas, but also to once again, encouraging people into those courses because a lot of those courses are disappearing because they're not getting the traction and the volume that they need to sustain those courses. And science subjects, as you could appreciate, cost a lot more to run because you need to have laboratories. So it just makes a bit more challenging. And obviously there will be um, reshuffling. There'll be also upskilling of existing people in the workforce in terms of helping them to get more of those critical and problem-solving skills, particularly as we deploy more data and introduce more data and analytics into, into the way we operate you know even the, the laborer is going to have to learn how to see data interpret data and make decisions on based on data
0: yeah, it is incredible. There is a whole technology layer that goes across that entire supply chain, doesn't it? And uh, and it's exciting stuff, the robotics and drones and all, you know, all kinds of AI and use of data is going to add huge value in the next little while. Look, just finally, I wanted to ask about a federated system of government. So, you know, the federal government can set direction on these things in some ways, but the states have got their own programs going on. How do you see different levels of government maximizing the value that they can bring to uh you know, development of the industries.
1: If I can just unpack a bit what you're saying. So, the challenge that we do have across Australia is the fact that we do have a federated um, system. And as a result, each state has its own investment, but they also have their own rules, set of rules around how food is grown, produced, and manufactured. And so that introduces complexity, particularly if you're a national player and you're sourcing and manufacturing nationally you've got to deal with all the different jurisdictions across the country. So that causes costs into how you do things. Where it's worked really well is where there's been alignment, alignment from the local state to the federal, where we can align initiatives. And that's what we tried to do with some of our programs and our investment around innovation was aligning it so you can amplify the impact. And sometimes it's easy and it all depends on the people who, the government in power at the time, but also the people, that corporate history that I talk about and the relationships that we have with some of these people of how we join forces to deliver greater value for that scarce resources. And I always say it's additive. If we can work together, we achieve a lot more. Appreciate it's got to be something in it for them and they've obviously the branding and, you know, the recognition that can all be managed. You know, there are a lot of companies that go into partnership, and that everything can be managed. It's just a case of the willingness and the mindset to cooperate and collaborate.
0: All right. I think that brings us to the end. Mariana Prika, Managing Director of FIAL, the Food Innovation Australia Limited Growth Centre. Thanks very much. That was uh, that was very fascinating.
1: Thank you, and um, looking forward to our food system coming to life.
0: Wow. Beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationOz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead.